This is a sermon preached on October 1st, 2023. Today's reading is from Matthew 25. It is called the Parable of the Talents, and it is super long. So let me just give you a brief synopsis, and you can go read it yourself if you want. Um, this is a story where a, a wealthy landowner goes away for a while and entrusts three workers um, with sums of money, talents they're called, and uh, I guess expects them to do something with that money while he is gone. And two workers of the three double the money that they're given, while the third uh, doesn't do anything and just buries the money and uh, wants to keep it safe. I will read this part for you regarding that third worker. Here that worker says to the landowner, Knowing your ruthlessness, you who reap where you did not sow and gather where you did not scatter, and fearing your wrath, I went off and buried your thousand dollars in the ground. Here's your money back. The landowner exclaimed, You worthless, lazy lout, so you know that I reap where I don't sow and gather where I don't scatter, do you? All the more reason to deposit my money with the bankers so that my on my return, I could have had it back with interest. You there, take the thousand away from this bomb and give it to the one with the ten thousand. So you might have heard that we recently paused church to gather in small groups to eat together and talk about big picture things for the future. And in those meetings, we rolled through a series of questions together meditatively in a way and one of the questions that was asked was, what do people need? And by that, we mean, what do people in your life need right now? What are the big questions floating in the ether and consolidating amongst you and your friends and your family and whoever else is around you? And many really interesting answers were given. And I hope that we'll be able to dive into each one of them at some point in the future. But one answer in particular stuck with me since I heard it, which is itself another question. Can that be true? Can that be true? This is, a, I think, a poetic rendering of a question we ask implicitly and explicitly all the time. To move through the world is to be, uh, you know, bombarded with a reality that is constantly at odds with our expectations, desires, and hopes. You know, these things extend from the totally banal, like being super late for a meeting and you uh, look at the clock and you see the time and you can't help but wonder how can that time be true, to big life-changing things, both good and bad, things worth celebrating, things worth grieving, the weight of which triggers an examination of whether or not we have understood the information, the circumstance correctly, or are being lied to in some way. Here I, uh, in the sermon, shared a couple of difficult and really troubling, tragic circumstances that a few members of our community or former members of our community are going through right now, which I will um, not share on this recording for their privacy. Um, and I also shared some celebrations, babies being born and uh, babies will be born after um, difficult journeys towards pregnancy that have 
reach fruition, just examples on both sides of um, the kinds of things that hit us, the truths that hit us, um, good and bad, that, pause us, that cause us to pause for a second and ask these questions. Knowledge, uh, I think, feels can feel like this sort of cold horror taking in effects about the world. But so much of what becomes what we know really starts off as an emotional response to what we believe. Such is it that we live in unfortunate times where um, the reality of this sort of emotional response is causing a lot of detrimental effects. It's a time of uh, fake news, a general climate of suspicion about anything that does not readily fit into our own picture of how things are and should be. You know, many, um, uh, we'll call them sort of liberal elites, often blame disinformation, misinformation as the scourge uh, we need to remedy. Obama's war on disinformation is the kind of headline I saw a lot, you know, especially in 2022, and of which I've heard very little since, <laughs> interestingly. Um, but I think fixing fa Facebook's algorithm is the kind of solution proposed by someone who would rather look at people as dumb or smart rather than emotional creatures with a propensity of bent towards both good and evil. This question of truth in the way I've been describing it, I think for me has much more to do with the latter. The question, can that be true, as it was posed over pizza and wine a few weeks ago, was geared towards the future outcome of things desired, dreams of a better world, visions of a political movement or an organization's vision coming to manifest, um, healing of one's wounds and traumas and being told we can transform our lives into a place of flourishing and peace and joy. And I can think of um, few places these days where such a reaction, such a question is uh, prompted more than church, than in church. You know, here we proclaim uh, death is overcome, right? Can that be true? We proclaim justice will roll down like water. Can that be true? We proclaim that you, we are loved and worth loving. Can that be true? In this sense, I'm sorry to break the news. You already knew in your heart that this question is unanswerable in many ways, in most ways. There is plenty of evidence on every side to say yes or no. History has many victories, many defeats, many in this world who find love and heal and many who find only despair and death. Who can say yes or no, or maybe, or when, or how, in a way that could totally guarantee anything for any of us? That we ask the question is symptomatic of a way we render reality. Think here of the way a child grows, quote unquote, into asking such a question as their reality slowly, surely, and I would say maybe unfortunately, comes to look 
a lot like ours, our adult versions. In light of this, I'm wondering if we ought to be asking something else, something more like, do you want it to be true? I think this kind of question uh, travels more along the lines of what God might be asking us. God is um, a bit of a mystery, you might say. And it'd be, of course, uh, a whole other talk to go through all that right now in detail. But let me just say um, one way to think of God, one way to think of God, not understand God perhaps, but to think of God is to describe God as all possibility and all truth happening all of the time. What can be and what is fused together in such a way that we collapse the distance between possibility and truth. What can be is, what is, is what can be. Everything, everywhere, all at once. To borrow the name of a movie I've never seen, to be honest, but here is quite good. Death has been conquered, and yet all around us, death still stalks us. Justice is being served, and yet all around us, injustice is the law of the land. So much of Christian thought, and you know, if our culture's current obsession with the multiverse is any indication, thought in general is about wrestling with this collapse of time and space, where what we want and what we have is here and it's not. Which again leaves us not with the question of whether or not something is true, but rather begs us to examine our relationship to that truth. Today's reading, the parable, the parable of the talents, is a, a really complicated one. At first glance, um, we might see a depiction of a mean and vengeful God who punishes those who do nothing. Which, you know, I would understand why people would read it that way. I think it's a fair re reading and it, uh, perhaps worth exploring why um, a mean and vengeful God is so disconcerting to us. But digging a bit more, we might see a story about a relationship of mutual trust that has been betrayed. The landowner trusts the workers with a great sum of money. A talent, which as I mentioned earlier is um, the name of the amount of money given, um, and of course, we acknowledge the kind of interesting language, uh, double meaning there, was said to be worth a year's wages. One talent is a lot of money. And one person got five of them, the other two and the other one. Um, five, I mean, one is a lot of money. Five is a, a bounty of wealth. And with that amount, uh, each worker, the text says, was given according to their ability. The first two understood the assignment, and more so, as this interpretation goes, understood the relationship of trust reciprocated between themselves and the landowner. And in that trust, they felt safe to take risks to grow what they have, what they had been trusted with. But the third person seems to commit two mistakes here. The first is that they let themselves be ruled by fear of the unknown, fear of risk. But more interestingly, their 
Second mistake is to misread the nature of the landowner, their master. Knowing your ruthlessness, you who reap where you did not sow and gather where you did not scatter, the worker says, I didn't want to lose the money. To which the match, the master or the landowner interestingly replies, So you know that I reap where I don't sow and gather where I don't scatter, do you? So you think that's who I am, do you? That's how you see me, the master seems to ask. If you really thought that, you'd have acted differently. Now, if this parable is to be read as, you know, a pretty straightforward allegory where God is this landowner and we the people are the workers, then as one commentator writes, the criterion with which God will make an accounting then is not the ability to attain a return on investment. It is in the ability to, ability to transform a fearful orientation into one of trust, to move from terror to faith. This is a fairly common reading of the text, and I think a fair one, you know, that asks us to question how we view God, as many do view God as this ruthless figure full of wrath, and also understand the work we are called to do to take risks with what we have been given in life in order that we might grow God's vision here on earth. By this understanding, the question of do we believe plays out in what we do with this life we are given. But like I said, you know, this is a complicated parable. Another commentator asks us to consider the system under which this parable plays out. Land-owning masters and servants and slaves and farmers under them who work the land and so on. Jesus, as the commentator wonders, is perhaps the third servant here thrown out for refusing to play by these terrible rules. I am, um, you know, not super convinced of that interpretation, but I think it's worth thinking about and sitting with. I also think it's worth being open to the possibility that this uh, parable is about the workers and owners as a system who owns the means of production, um, a parable about money and exploitation. Here I was reminded of something that has been making the viral rounds these days, the United Auto Workers strike. And this is um, the thing that was going viral is this excerpt from a speech by the president of the UAW, Sean Fain. I'm gonna read a portion of it for you here. People accuse us of waging class warfare. There's been class warfare going on in this country for the last 40 years. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving everybody else to fight for the scraps. When I talk about that, it reminds me of one more piece of scripture, Matthew 19.24. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? I have to believe that answer, at least in part, is because in the kingdom of God, no one hoards all the wealth while everyone else suffers and starves. In the kingdom of God, no one puts themselves in a position of total domination over the entire community. In the kingdom of God, no one forces others to perform endless, back-breaking work just to feed their families or put a roof over their heads. That world is not the kingdom of God. That world is hell. Living paycheck to paycheck, scraping to get by, that's hell. 
Choosing between medicine and rent is hell. Working seven days a week for 12 hours a day for months on end is hell. Having your plant closed down and your family scattered across the country is hell. Being made to work during a pandemic and not knowing whether you might get sick or die or spread the disease to your family is hell. Enough is enough. It's time to decide what kind of world we want to live in. And it's time to decide what we are willing to do to get it. When I first read that, I had two responses. The first was to want to run through a freaking brick wall for the sake of justice. And the second, and this is how you know I'm a distinct child of the internet age, was an immediate fear that Sean Fain, who I'd never heard of before, was about to get milkshake ducked. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that term. If you're not familiar somehow, it's internet speak for whenever someone, someone um, who's being praised or valorized or is beloved on the internet is quickly revealed to have done something terrible in their lives or they're a terrible person or something. Uh, the phrase comes from this amazing tweet, which has nothing to do with anything, but I think is hilarious. The whole internet loves milkshake duck, a lovely duck that drinks milkshakes. Five seconds later, we, we regret to inform you the duck is racist. As it turns out, I haven't seen anything like uh, that about Mr. Fain yet, but I did read that he is fairly new to the job as his predecessor was indicted on charges of embezzlement and fraud. And as a staunch supporter of unions myself, I'm also thoroughly unsurprised by union corruption. As today's parable is complicated, so too is this life we live where at every turn there is every confirmation of every truth we could hope to have of good and evil as it exists in everything, everywhere, all of the time. And so it is that I found myself recently talking with like a mentor figure in my life, doing what so many of us are really good at, which is complaining and being cynical about the difficulty and pain and frustration of trying to change things for the better in this world, changing institutions, and systems, and of course, people. And she says to me, you need to accept that you will fail at all those things. Um, it's fair to say that I don't seek out this person's counsel for a pep talk. She would not make a good union president, probably. Um, but her point was that failure and success whether or not something can or can't be true is not the way I should look at stuff. Without a godlike relationship to time and space, without the multiverse in the short span of life we are afforded to live out in this world, looking at everything as a series of pure outcomes will always disappoint. Rather, she challenged me to sit with this question instead. What do my beliefs require me to do? I'm tempted here to overcomplicate the question, as is our want in this community. But everything else I have said today was doing just that, if you were paying attention. So having said my piece, I'm going to just let you sit with that question. What do my beliefs require me to do?
Amen.